Good morning. Today, I want to start off by asking you a few questions. Who are you? Who are you? Who are we? Who is Victory Faith? Who are Christians? Who is the Big C Church? What is identity? How do I find myself? What is my purpose? Does everyone have a calling? And how do I find God's will for my life? Today we're starting through the book of Ephesians. We're going to go through the whole book practically verse by verse. And we're going to study it together as a church on Sunday mornings for the next six weeks. We're going to talk about identity and calling. But a very important thing we're going to find out is that these questions that I start off with, while we ask them a lot, and some of them a lot more than others, they are all about us. It's all about me. What, who am I? How do I find myself? They're very individualized. They aren't enough about God. In Ephesians, Paul is going to let us know that our identity is less about ourselves and actually more about God. This series is called The Church Is... Dot, dot, dot. And over the next six weeks, we're going to finish that sentence in six different ways. The church is blank, comma, blank, comma, blank. That's what we're going to be doing the next six weeks. And what I believe we're going to find is that our individual choices and our lives are very individually important, but that our individuality isn't important for ourselves. It's actually important for God and for his people. So us having an individual identity and purpose is important, but it's not important for me. It's important for us. And it's important for God and his mission and the greater mission of his church. So we're going to get right in today. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, open up with me to Ephesians chapter 1. It's also going to be on the screen. And we're going to go through all of Ephesians chapter 1 today. So buckle up and let's ride through Ephesians chapter 1 together. So it starts off with his greeting and his intro. Paul is the author of this book. He writes most of the books of the Bible, most of the books of the New Testament, sorry, not the whole Bible, the New Testament. And his books are letters written to churches that he helped to start and raise up the leadership in. So he starts it always with a greeting, but we can still learn from his greetings. A lot of times it's easy to just skip over those and be like, oh, he's just saying hi to everyone. But we're going to talk about what we notice in this. So starting in Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. So this letter is from Paul chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace, spiritual blessings, all praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So I don't know how well you were paying attention, but there are a few themes that he repeats multiple times or a few words or phrases he repeats multiple times throughout. So just take a minute and kind of look at these verses. See if you notice anything that's kind of repeated multiple times. See, today we're talking about the church is chosen. The church is chosen. We are chosen by God. 
individually and as a whole. We are chosen to be his church. So that's the kind of the what. What we are chosen. Who is chosen? We see this in the themes throughout this. What I saw mentioned multiple times was holy, those who are holy, those who are faithful, those who are followers. And then this phrase, of Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ or because of Jesus Christ, blank Jesus Christ, in, through, uh, by, of Jesus Christ, multiple, multiple times. He's putting our identity not in us, not in a place, not in any other person, but in Jesus Christ. And he says it multiple times throughout this book, throughout this chapter, and even throughout these first six verses. So who is chosen? The holy, the faithful, the followers, and those who are of Jesus Christ. And then why are we chosen? If you noticed as we read through that, he went through his greeting and he mentions all of these adjectives describing us and these phrases and who we belong to. And then it goes into repeatedly, blessing, blessings, blessings, blessing, blessed, blessed, blessings, blessed. (laughs) For blessing. Why are we chosen? Who is chosen? Why? Because he wants us to be blessed, to bless him, to be a blessing, to receive his blessing. This series outlines who we are as the church of Jesus Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important to note, I am in this Bible study right now, and we just had a week talking about the church. And so what we do is we take verses, whatever verses come next as we're looking over the whole holistic story of the Bible, and we take these verses on the church, and we talk about just, okay, what does that actually mean? What did that mean to the people that was reading this at the time when it actually happened? What what did they hear when they heard it that way so that we can kind of pull out of that in context what the real meaning of it is getting at? And as we were talking about the church and what it actually means to be the church and what the Bible means when it talks about it and what that looks like, we also all shared our stories. Now, I'm in a group with strangers. So we're complete strangers in this group. We're meeting on Zoom, okay? And so we all, we've been in this group for, I don't know, maybe two months now. And so we've gotten to know each other a little bit through that, but it's still just Zoom once a week is pretty much all it is. And we all shared our background in our church experience, how we grew up and where we're at now and how we got from there to here. And probably at least half the group said something along the lines of, well, I grew up in a church that pretty much said we were the only right church and everyone else was wrong. And that wasn't we were the only right denomination even. <laughs> like a collection of churches who believe the same thing. It was my one local church was the only right one and everyone else was wrong and in danger of not going to heaven or just flat out they aren't unless they're part of this church. So with half of my group having that experience, I want to pause here and tell you this church is not the only church. (laughs) This church is a small part of what I like to call the Big C Church, the capital C Church, the church that is universal throughout generations across national boundaries, across racial boundaries, the church who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came to die for our sins, and he lives again, and he brought his kingdom to earth that we can experience it here and now. All the churches everywhere throughout time and eternity who believe that and live that, that is the part of the church that we are. So when we're talking today, we're talking about the big C church. 
We are a little C church. That's part of the big C church. So it applies to us. It applies to us, but we're not saying we are the chosen victory faith church. We are the chosen ones. No, 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 no. We are part. And this is another reason why it's important to know our individuality is important and what God speaks to us as individual people or as an individual church is important, but it's only important in light of the capital C church. It's only important in light of God who loves all of his children in creation. And our part that we get to play in that overarching mission is what makes our individual purpose and calling important. Our individual purpose and calling apart from the greater mission and call of God for the whole church is insignificant. So today as we're talking about how we, the church, are chosen, let's get that perspective correct. That it's in light of the greater purpose that it's in light of the greater mission. It's in light of the whole of the church. And that we get to play a part of that here as an example to our local community what that is globally, what that is throughout time for eternity. So the nature of the church. Let's get into the nature of the church. Let's talk about where we're going from here. That was just the setup. That was the setup that we talked about in the first six verses. What we're going to see next is, uh, I think it's four things that God does that shows us that we are chosen for these things. So the nature of church. How many of you have heard the phrase, blessed to be a blessing? Blessed to be a blessing. I am um, nobody. Anyone? Nobody? Okay, okay. A few people. A few people heard the phrase, blessed to be a blessing. So that means I've been blessed, but I haven't been blessed just to be a bottomless pit to receive blessing. I have been blessed so that I can share blessing with others so that I can give, so that I can be part of blessing with other people. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. We hear that. How many of you love giving gifts on Christmas? Your favorite part isn't even the receiving part. It's when you got that one special gift for that one special person, and you just know they're going to love it. The anticipate, and then seeing their face when they open it and how excited they are. It's more blessed to give than to receive, and we are blessed to be a blessing. So in these first six verses, he's talking about all the blessings he wants to give us. And so in light of that, as we move forward and we talk about the blessings that he's given us because we are chosen in him, it is so much through the church that we receive to give, that it comes in to go out, that we receive to send out. That is the whole purpose of the church. It's this cyclical thing. It's this cycle that we receive so that we give. We give so that we receive. We receive so that we give. And it keeps on going like that in everything that we do as a church. So number one today is that we are showered with kindness. If you have your sermon notes, there are fill-in-the-blank notes in the worship guides that you get handed when you come in. So make sure that you guys get those if you want to help, uh, if you want to write along in your notes with us on Sundays. So number one, showered with kindness. So picking back up in verse 6, he says, So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. What's important to notice here is that we did not deserve the showers of kindness. We did nothing to earn it or to deserve it. We didn't deserve it. It was an act of grace. The definition of grace 
is getting something that you do not deserve. It's, I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs, doing nothing, and then Kyle decides to bring me a bouquet of flowers for sitting around twiddling my thumbs, doing nothing. Grace. Or even more than that, what then goes into what we call mercy is I've actually done something wrong. Say I just chewed Kyle out and was really mean to him. And then he decides for that he's going to bring me a bouquet of flowers. That is mercy. <laughs> mercy is defined as you actually deserved punishment or retribution or consequence. And instead, I didn't give you that retribution or consequence or punishment. We didn't do anything to deserve God's grace. He just gives it to us because he can and wants to and loves us and is full of kindness. So anytime you see the word grace in the Bible, it might be a helpful exercise and open your eyes in a new way to the word of God. If you fill it or if you can just start it off with what I'm about to say is something you do not deserve. We can read it in that light. Anytime I was about to talk about grace or use the word grace, what I'm about to tell you is something you don't deserve. But God in his grace gave you blank. Because I think today in our culture, I don't know what it is about our culture. I'm not a sociologist. I don't know. I haven't studied it. But there is something, and I think you will probably recognize this or you will resonate with this in some way. There's something in our culture that says we deserve it. We deserve it all. How many times do we say that to people? Well, you deserve it. How many times do I say that to myself? Well, I deserve this. I deserve happiness. I deserve the good house. I deserve to have everything that person has. I deserve to have better than that person has. Or do we say it to other people? Well, you deserve, you're a good person, so you deserve it. Or whether they're a good person or not, you deserve it. <laughs> How many times do we say you deserve it or I deserve it? The truth of the Bible is we don't deserve it. We do not deserve it. But God, in his grace, gave it anyway. If we don't start from a place of, I don't deserve it, then what Jesus did really isn't that great because we think we deserved him to do it anyway. What he did and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the calling that he's extended to us is not that great if we think we're that great. So we have to start from a place of knowing we are born sinners. We are born messed up. It's not just the world happening to us, and that's part of it, and it contributes. But we're born messed up. My baby wants something. She throws a fit. <laughs> she screams. You know, we are born wanting, give me, I deserve it. But we don't. We didn't do anything to deserve it. Now, do I want to give her things anyway? Am I proud of her anyway? Absolutely. And she's done nothing. And I love her to death. And that's why God pours out his grace on us anyway. When we don't deserve it. But we've got to start from a place of I don't deserve it. So when you see grace in the Bible from now on, start off with what I'm about to say you do not deserve. And you did nothing to deserve. Maybe you did something to deserve punishment. But God gives it to us anyway. But God showers his kindness on us anyway. When we announced that I was pregnant with Moxie, we had been married seven years. And so most people in general 
Maybe they do like a, what I call the five-year plan where you get married and you want like five years to just be a couple and everything. And the, Well, my, I had like a one-year plan. I was actually wanting to start having kids foster, adopt, or have a baby like one year in. And most of those closest to me knew that. Everyone thought we were going to have a honeymoon baby. Like everyone thought we were going to have honey. So we get like seven years in and we just now say that we are pregnant. And these are some of the responses I got. Well, I got a lot of crazy responses, but the main one that I'm going to focus in on, someone texted me. They saw my Facebook announcement. Then they texted me and said, oh my goodness, I'm so glad for you and Kyle. You deserve it. I was like, what exactly did I do besides performing the deed to deserve having a baby? I was like, seriously, what exactly happened where I'm the one who deserves What about my friends who have been trying and trying and trying and praying and praying and praying and they don't have a baby? What about my friends who got pregnant and lost their baby? What about people who frankly do not deserve it and have a ton of babies? What did I do to deserve having a baby? Nothing. No, what? What in the world? You deserve it. Also, that insinuates that I had been trying to get pregnant for seven years, and honestly, we weren't. We were having a lot of fun fostering and adopting. <laughs> we were just gonna, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to have a biological baby at the time. So what did I do to deserve it? What does that even mean? You deserve to have a baby. Well, that can mean a lot of different things depending on how you look at it. You deserve to stay up all night, all the time, and just have a human crawling on you at all times and screaming at you. That's what you deserve. No, I know that's not how she meant it, but what in the world did I deserve? What did I do to deserve getting pregnant? Especially in comparison to those who can't or who tried. I didn't fill out some checklist that was like at the end, the goal of getting pregnant. This is the checklist. I didn't do that. See, God is kind. He is wise. He is understanding in how he looks upon us. Think about this. Like, what are you an expert in? What is like your field of expertise? What are you good at? What do you do most? What do you spend your time learning or doing? What if someone else is attempting to do what you are an expert in, what you are experienced in, and then they make mistakes? You understand their mistakes because when you first started off, you made the same mistakes, right? You understand that. You have an understanding for it. You also have wisdom because from your experience, you understand what it was like at the beginning to mess up and not fully know what you're doing. But then from your experience, you have wisdom. Okay, now I know that this is what happens when this happens. And in this scenario, you do this or that instead. So you have experience. When we want to, when I want parenting advice, I go to someone more experienced than me who has some good grown-up kids and they have some success story, right? Like I ask people a lot, especially in the adoption world. I'm like, before I ask you, Please tell me you have a success story with your kids because I really need to hear some success stories. So we want someone with experience. We want someone also not just with the experience, but with the understanding to relate to the struggle we're currently in. And in this verse, it talks about how he has understanding, he has wisdom, and he has kindness. And I just thought this like equation, wisdom plus understanding equals kindness. It's not one or the other, just wisdom. It's just knowing how to do the right thing. And, you know, you have that wisdom. You have that experience. Just understanding is empathy. You understand where they're coming. But both of them mesh together. If I have the wisdom and I have the understanding, that can be a great level of kindness. And he has that kind of kindness for us. He understands what we go through. He's been there himself. 
Number two today is that we're chosen for greatness. We are chosen for greatness. So we are showered with kindness. We are chosen for greatness. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 9, he says this, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we, the Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And it goes on to talk about how not just the Jews, but then it extends. His grace goes even beyond those who were the first to believe in him. But it's so that Christ would bring praise and glory to God. So that those who um, trust in him would bring praise and glory to God. So at the right time, that's the first part of this verse, at the right time, it doesn't say when you think it's a good time. It doesn't say when you're ready, when you feel like you've gotten there, when you're ready to finally believe in God or put your trust in him or sweep up your own life. When you finally have it all together, when you think it's the right time, it doesn't say that. It says, at the right time. Who defines what is right? I believe God defines what is right. I believe there is absolute truth. It's not your truth and my truth that we're living. I want to God, live God's truth. I believe there is one truth. And that's the truth that I want to believe and I want to walk in. And his truth says there is a right time that we will come everything together under his authority. It's not when I think it's about to be the right time. It's not when I want it to be the right time or the wrong time. It's when he defines it being the right time. It's not in our timing. He doesn't make everything happen, but he makes it all work out. That's another important part in this passage to notice. He doesn't make cancer happen. He doesn't make death happen. He doesn't make war happen. Now, sometimes he may have a purpose in those things for some greater vision that we don't see. He doesn't make everything happen, though. Everything that happens just because he's an all-powerful God does not mean he's the one who instigates it happening. We have free will. We decide what we are wanting to do. God didn't force us to do it. He's not a puppet master. He doesn't make everything happen, but for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The Bible says those who love him and are called, he works it out for good. A lot of times we say he works everything out for good. It says for those who are called and love him, he works everything out for good. He does not always work everything out for good. He does not make everything happen. But for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and that we choose in love to step into that purpose and walk in that calling he has for us, he will work it all out. It does not mean you will no longer have suffering or trial or pain or that bad things won't happen. It means that he will take those things when they happen and make it into something good. That's what that means. For what purpose, though? Why does he make it to just pat us on the shoulder? If that, he would, if that was the reason to just like console us, he would keep it all from happening in the first place, right? No, he has a greater purpose. He has a greater plan. It's for his glory. It's for something greater than our own imagination. 
we get to be part in bringing God glory. And in that, we experience a full life. And a full life has the suffering, but it has the suffering where we become closer with God, closer to God's people. We gain experience and understanding to show amazing kindness to others in it. And then we are used for a greater purpose. Has anyone ever felt there must be more to life than this? Or I want to be part of something bigger. This is what it is. This is the more to life. This is the something bigger that we're invited to be a part of. We are chosen for greatness. Think about it this way. My baby's name is Moxie, if you don't know. If she falls, she's, walk she's just, just walking right now. If she falls... Did I make her fall? Probably not. I hope not. I hope I didn't like intentionally, ah, I'm trying to get you to walk and I'm going to trip you on purpose. No. Or maybe it was an accident. I don't know. But most of the time, do I make her fall? No. I'm not wanting her to fall. I want her to get confidence in walking. So what do I do instead? If she falls and she looks up to be like, should I cry? Should I scream? Should I? And we go, yay! That's what we do, literally. And then she's like, hee hee, this is fun. She doesn't get scared of it then. She thinks, oh my goodness, falling and getting back up is something fun. We try to turn it into something good. The fall is not the good part necessarily. But her learning how to interpret the fall and get back up is us helping work it out for good. That's what God does for us. That way she learns how to receive comfort. She learns how to comfort herself, and she learns how to become more resilient. That's what God does for us in our struggles. We learn how to receive comfort. We learn how to be a comfort for others. We learn how to be more resilient, to dust ourselves off and pick ourselves back up. But again, his plan's not primarily to lift us up. It's to bring him glory. He gets the glory through lifting us up. Any greatness he allows to shine in us is for the higher purpose of his ultimate greatness and glory. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we're awesome. It's because in him, he uses us for greatness. He uses us for great things. We don't deserve it. We're not great on our own. But in him, we get to share in his greatness. It says we get his inheritance. We get all of his riches and glories and spiritual blessings and kindness. That is his inheritance. We get a purpose. We get a calling. Outside of him, we have none of that. We just have some counterfeit version of that in this world that we cannot take with us when we go. But in him, we have something that lasts beyond. It's a greatness that lasts beyond. So number two is that we're chosen for greatness. Number three is we're marked with the Holy Spirit. We're marked with the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Let's read about it. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 13. And now you Gentiles, these are the people who did not trust in Jesus at the beginning. They are a separate people. They're also a separate race. So it's discussing racial and ethnic differences. It's discussing religious differences. It's discussing who grew up in the church versus who didn't. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. So this right here is a picture of you were an orphan, right? Because these are the Gentiles now that he's talking to, the ones who weren't with God from the beginning, from day one. You were an orphan, and I decided to stamp my last name on you. 
and take you in and adopt you. I have marked you with the Holy Spirit by giving you the Spirit. I have identified you as my own. So he gives us belonging. He gives us identity. We're starting to hear the identity talk coming. Verse 14, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised. I'm now part of the family. I am now an heir to God and his plan and his purpose and his mission. He promised that he has purchased us by to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. It tells us why. He loved us and so that we would not just sit here again and be a bottomless pit of his love and blessings, but so that we would receive it to give and to give glory to him and to praise him. So we see identity come up, and it's going to come up a lot in Ephesians as we go through this. So think about this. Do you have the spirit in your life? It says that's our assurance that we have the inheritance of eternal life, of the blessings of God. If we have his spirit marking our lives, that's our identity. We really put identity, individual identity today up as a God in our culture, a little G God. We're really getting into grammar today with the big C church and the little G God. Just bear with me. Why would he want to take us into his family, give us a new identity if we didn't deserve it. It's to glorify him. We talked about that. But this world elevates a God of individual identity, of independence. We just had Independence Day. I'm not bashing the 4th of July. It's one of my favorite holidays. It's fun. It's summer. It's fireworks. But independence, me being isolated and on my own and doing everything for myself, not the way we were designed. God made one human and said it's not good for him to be alone. From the beginning of time. It is not good for humans to be alone. It is not good for them to be 100% individually isolated independent. As the church, we're to be interdependent on one another. That's not codependent. That's not completely dependent. We're to be completely dependent on God and interdependent on one another, that we rely on one another. It says two are better than one. If one is cold, the other can lie down and keep them warm. Two heads are better than one. All of these things. We are to be the body of Christ, many different parts with different skills, with different experiences, strengths, and weaknesses, working together so that we can rely on one another. When I'm weak, you're strong. When you're strong, I'm, I didn't ever give myself a strength in that scenario. When I'm strong and you're weak, I can be strength for you. When I need comfort and you've been there, you can be comfort for me. We cannot do this apart from the body. But we elevate this, well, I prefer this. I identify as this. My main purpose in life is this one individual unique calling for myself. This is my truth. And we elevate identity and my personal wants and desires the way that I feel comfort as a God in this culture. It's not about what the identity is so much as it's about the fact that we put something up above God. That's the real issue, is that we're putting anything, specifically anything about me, 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 as the most important thing. Our number one identity is I am a child of God. 
I belong to Jesus. I am marked by his spirit. So what's it mean to be marked by his spirit? What's it mean to be marked by his spirit? So I want us to ask, I have this in our notes, I don't want to skip it. Where is your identity? We need to ask ourselves, where is your identity? Is it in my work? Is it in the fact that I'm a wife and a mom? Is it a sexual identity? Is that like my label I've put on myself? What is the label? What is the identity? That's the number one way you view yourself. And it is the lens through which you see life and make all your decisions. That's above God. It needs to be I'm a child of God. That's the lens through which I see myself and make all my life decisions. Whatever it is that's rivaling for that, whatever it is that we think of and that we talk to ourselves of and we call ourselves of more than that. We sing this song, I am called, I am healed, I am favored, I am anointed. We are declaring what God says we are, whether we believe it yet or not. That's who God says we are when we're in him. Again, in Jesus, of Jesus, not off by ourselves, in, of, through, and by Jesus, and for Jesus. So where is your identity? Challenge yourself. Think of that. And then how to know if you have the Spirit in your life, if you are marked by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 23. We're going to depart from Ephesians for a second here to answer this. It's love. It's a spoiler alert. It's just love. Love, love, love. Love isn't being okay with everyone and everything they do all the time. That's not love. Love isn't tolerance. Love isn't acceptance. Love isn't being nice. Love isn't being mean. Love isn't being passive. Love isn't being aggressive. Love isn't letting anyone do whatever they want without warning them that they're about to fall off a cliff or burn their hand on the stove. Love isn't turning a blind eye. Love is a strong and a brave choice to stand in God's kingdom standard by his kingdom standard that is above any other standard of this world or system. That's what love is. I know that's a really weird definition of love. You can also read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It was not written for marriage. It was written for how the church is supposed to act. It's right in between two other churches about how you do your church service. And then all of a sudden, love is kind, love is patient, all these things. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 13, jot that down and read it in a way that's not just in a wedding ceremony. Read it in a new way. That's what the church is supposed to be. Love is a strong and brave choice to stand in God's kingdom standards. Galatians 5, 16 through 23 talks about the difference between living life as individuals in our own identities versus living life marked by the Spirit. It says this, as you yield freely and fully to the dynamic life and power of the Holy Spirit. Pause. We have to yield to him. He doesn't force his way on us. We yield to the Holy Spirit. So if we want to be marked by the Spirit, it's not like he's going to sneak up on us and then stamp our foreheads with a tattoo. That's not how he marks us. We yield to him having his way in our life. As you yield freely and fully to the dynamic life and power of the Holy Spirit, you will abandon the cravings of your self-life. That's our individual identities. For your self-life craves the things that offend the Holy Spirit and hinder him from living free within you. Verse 18, but when you are brought into the full freedom of the spirit of grace, you will no longer be living under the domination of the law, but soaring above it. Haven't I already warned you that those who use their freedom or their independence or their individuality for these things will not inherit the kingdom realm of God, but the fruit produced by the spirit. This answers the question, how do I know if I have the spirit and the assurance that comes with it? The fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its spirit expressions. Now pause here. In most translations we grew up with, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is, and then we list nine different things. 
nine different character traits. Another grammar lesson real quick, bear with me. It says the fruit of the spirit is, is means singular, one fruit. I think maybe when it's translated into English, we get like a colon, semicolon, comma situation messed up. Because it says the fruit of the spirit is love, and this is what love looks like. Because all of these things define love. And we can back that up by what 1 Corinthians 13 says. So in a recent translation that came out, it explains it this way. And I had thought about this years ago. And I was like, but it says it is not the fruit of the Spirit are nine different things. It says the fruit of the Spirit is nine different things. That doesn't make sense. So maybe it's all this explains love. And then this translation came out. It says, but the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit with you is love divine love in all its varied expressions. So now we'll hear the nine that we used to know growing up in Sunday school. Fill in the blanks with me. Joy, that overflows. Peace, that subdues. Patience, that endures. Kindness in action. A life full of virtue. Faith, that prevails. Gentleness of heart strength of spirit so to be marked by the holy spirit means that our life exhibits as a tree produces fruit so you know it's an orange tree because it has an orange on it you know that i am marked by the spirit based on if this fruit is in my life when we're a christian and we claim jesus name we're saying hey you look at my fruit look at what my life produces and tell me whether I'm an orange tree or not. Because I'm saying I'm an orange tree. And so something is wrong if I am producing apples instead. Please let me know so I can get this disease figured out in my life. Right? The Bible says you can know a tree by its fruit. You can know a person by the result of their life. So how do you know? Look at the fruit of your life. Is it divine love in all its varied expressions? Is it joy, peace, patience, kindness, virtue, faith? gentleness, strength of spirit, or self-control. And then finally, never set the law above these qualities for they are meant to be limitless. We hear it again. Don't put rules. Don't put your preferences. Don't put your traditions, your religion above these things. These are limitless. They require no rules. They require no bounds. What I'm about to say is in no way a political statement. And my husband just went, <laughs> But I've been made aware recently through a book I read that really talks about all sides of the political spectrum and talking about how we really just need to be about Jesus and the word of God. And there is a phrase, love is love, and it's used for a lot of different things. And this is not a political statement on that. I preached a message on some of that stuff a while ago. You can go look it up in our archives on YouTube. But... When we are saying things, and it can be that, it can be other things. But when we say things like that, we're taking a Bible verse and switching something out. Because you know what the Bible says is love? God. We've taken an identity and placed it above God. God is love. Nothing else is love. This is love. Divine love. This is what it looks like. This is above all of it. Everything. 
This is above all of it. Never set the law above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless. And when we try to regulate and force our ideas on these things, we've got it wrong. And we're setting a God above the God. And we're out of order. One of the best definitions I've ever heard for what sin is, is disordered desires. When our desires are out of order, that's sin. And I'm not sitting here today telling you what order everything else should be in. I'm standing here today telling you God is number one. God's not just number one. God's all over it. God's in it. God's through the list. God's everywhere. Everything else on the list has God stamped on it. And if it's not that way, you have another God above him. God is love. Nothing else is. Nothing else can fulfill these things the way he can. Nothing else will never let you down like he will. Absolutely nothing. So number three, well, that was a long one. Number three is we're marked with the Holy Spirit. Number four, and the final one today, is that we are filled with power. We're filled with power. He's given us kindness. He's called us to greatness. He's marked us with his identity, that we belong in him. And then finally, he fills us with power. How great is that? I mean, you could sit here and hear this message as, well, God's all about himself. He sounds pretty selfish. Or you could sit here and hear this message and be like, even though God's number one is about his glory because he is God, we've been spending this whole time saying he's number one, he's above it all. You could hear, even though he's God, he chooses not to sit up on a high and mighty throne and smite us or trample us like ants. He chooses to call us to greatness, to give us belonging, to give us a, a whole and a divine identity, to adopt us into his family to shower us with kindness and to fill us with power. Let's read these last several verses of Ephesians 1, starting in 15. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, he's heard about the fruit that they're producing. I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are rich and who are his rich and glorious inheritance so even though this is all about god and we receive his inheritance he's saying that we are his inheritance the wonderful wealth that he inherits is having his chosen people that's what he thinks of us, even though we've done nothing to deserve it. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. What he heard about them was their known identity at the beginning, but also we see that power comes from spiritual wisdom, insight and knowledge of God, but it doesn't stay there in a knowledge of God. It then moves into a revelation 
knowledge becoming real, a hope and a calling that doesn't even just stay there. Then we step into our calling and it leads to holiness. It leads to a people who bring glory to God by the way they live and the fruit they produce. Many times, myself included, we cherry pick verse 20. Verse 20 says, it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. And I've cherry picked it a lot of times and I was reading this and convicted of that because it's just a blip. It's not meant to be a standalone. We have the same power that raised Christ from the dead in us. And that's amazing. But it's a blip in this big chunk of scripture. That this big chunk of scripture, the overall context is all the gloriousness of God. All his glory, all his greatness, that he gives us an inheritance and we are his inheritance. That he wants to be one with us in greatness. Matthew 7, and 23 says, On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name, performed many miracles in your name. They had the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus replied, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. It puts something else, I'm gonna bet, over the fact that God is love. They put something else in their identity. Their identity was in the works that they performed, was in the power that they had. It wasn't in Jesus. And he said, I just wanted to know you. I just want to have a relationship with you. I just wanted to spend time with you. And in this summary here at the end that we read, we come back to the introduction of the chapter that sets the stage for the whole book. We come back to the purpose, the big picture. It's all about God's glory. Why? For the benefit of the church. It's all about God's glory for the benefit of the church. Not for you, the mighty individual, not for our preferred or relegated identities, but for his church, who we are together, who we are filled with and held together in him. It's all about God's glory, but again, it's the cycle. All about God's glory for the benefit of the church, to be all about his glory for the benefit of the church. And the cycle continues, and we become one with Jesus and who he is. Our identity is meant to be collective. Yes, we have individual strengths, and we are going to talk about that specifically in other parts of this book. But how he starts it is saying your number one identity is a collective identity of all of us together, one body, one church in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in my talent, my preference, my personality. It's in Jesus. We're chosen in and because of and held together by Jesus. We aren't chosen for our own benefit as much as we're chosen for the purpose of his glory and the benefit of his people his collective people. Let's pray together. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for giving us purpose. Thank you for giving us identity, for gathering us when we're wandering aimlessly and giving us a purpose and a calling and an identity. And I pray today that if there are any desires that we have that are disordered, any preferences, opinions, ideas, lies that we believe, truths that are out of order, that we would today be able to get our lives in line with you. And maybe it won't happen in an instant. For most of us, it doesn't happen in an instant, that everything is ordered correctly. But today we can start by saying, God, we want you to be our all in all, 
to be in us, through us, everything. Number one, all in and around. Thank you so much, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. And today with your eyes closed and your head still bowed, if today you realize that you have been living maybe for a long time with disordered desires, with things out of order from where they're supposed to be, and today you wanna get things in order, you wanna say, Jesus is the Lord of my life and everything in it, not just this one area, not just my Sunday life, not just my religious life or my spiritual life, but he's over all my life. I don't want it categorized or compartmentalized anymore. That Jesus is king over all of it. If that's you today, just as an act of surrendering to him, would you raise your hand on the count of three? If that's you, I'm giving Jesus everything is gonna be over it all today. One, two, three. Raise your hand if that's you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can put your hands down. Put your hands down. For everyone, for all of us, let's re-surrender to him today by saying this prayer together. We are a collective body and identity in Christ. So repeat this prayer after me today with those who want to give their lives to the Lord. Dear Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I know I don't deserve it. Thank you for giving me your love anyway. Today, I know that my life is out of order. I want you to be number one. I want you to be all over and in my life. Hold me together through you. Today, I declare that my identity is in you. Give my life to you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. I believe in you and I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church. Can we celebrate with those who gave their lives to the Lord today?